I don't know how familiar you are with this, but it is quite an astonishing um, story. It, right in the middle of Jeremiah's long, long um, book, his ministry was over 40 years. He was a perpetual failure. Anyone join him on that? Uh, it's just astonishing. He's, he's the most towering for me, the most towering, apart from Jesus, there's always some who will say, well, what about Jesus? But the most towering biblical figure, uh, to, to have his bones on fire for the Word of God constantly, even though he argued and complained with God. And God at one point told him, Jeremiah, not another word. Too far. You've overstepped the line, Jeremiah. And God still used him, still caused him to run with the horses, um, which is one of the most amazing um, uh, speeches of God to a uh, human being. Absolutely astonishing. But this, this chapter contains something really wonderful, uh, and hopefully you've picked that up as we were just reading the words of Scripture as they are plainly presented to us. But there's something quite powerful. So I want you to imagine the city of David that Nehemiah built. This is a generation after uh, um, uh, Jeremiah's time. So we're now, the, the ten northern tribes have already been scattered by the Assyrians and exiled and destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth, all because they hadn't obeyed, followed, loved the law of God. It's because we live in a moral universe that there are moral consequences in the natural order of the world. But God's revelation to us is of an entirely different kind of moral order. Specific law, specific regulation, to worship Him aright, to set our hearts aright before Him, and then to set our hearts on fire. God hates idolatry. He hates it. And He hates it because it destroys human beings. We are the ones that cause idolatry. We invent gods. Martin Luther said that the human heart is a factory of idols. And the whole of our lives, the whole of the Christian life, is slowly dismantling that factory and making those idols redundant. Amen? And only Christ, by His cross and His shed blood and the new covenant promises, is the power that can do this for us. I think Jeremiah knew this. So he was bringing God's word to Jerusalem and to Judah, and the people still didn't listen to him. So Jeremiah was a young man when the, 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 Jewish, the Judah king, Josiah, the boy king, began his reforms, cleaned up the temple, got rid of all the idol statues, found the law of God. It just says it in two kings. Josiah found the law. What? The law of God was lost? Astonishing. Complete forgetfulness. That's why one of the major words in the Bible, remember, remember, remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget. Why? Because as my wife has never said to me, you've forgotten again, haven't you? We have a tendency to forget both on a political level, on a spiritual level, on a personal level. 
Josiah's reforms didn't last, of course, because the hearts weren't changed. His son was put on the throne, but then the, the Pharaoh Necho of Egypt took him off and took him to Egypt. So his brother was put on the throne. It's like, a, it's like an episode of, I don't know, Dynasty or Dallas, remember that? Just power grab after power grab. So this is the context that Jeremiah is speaking in. But the kings of Judah mostly did not listen to God or his prophets. And so eventually the ground would shake with the feet of the Babylonian soldiers. And we don't know how terrifying that is, most likely. But it was terrifying. The tough Rechabites were scared enough to go into the city for what they thought would be protection. But just a few years later, Je Jerusalem itself was completely destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar would say it was as if he wiped the dish clean in the way that he talked about the destruction of the city. So it was a fearful thing. And it's in this context that Jeremiah meets the Rechabites. As I said, they're not even Hebrew, yet they radically followed this strict lifestyle, this hard lifestyle, which included no wine. I don't like that rule. And I know you are with me on that. No wine, no houses, no farming, no city living. But they lived in tents. They moved around. They had a nomadic lifestyle. It was harsh. These were tough people. Have I got the thing up there? That's, I took that picture when I, was in, um, when I went to um, uh, the West Bank in Israel a few years ago. They'd come into Jerusalem to save themselves from the Babylonian invasion. So Jeremiah told them to come to one of the side rooms of the temple uh, to hear what's going on. It was a test, of course, wasn't it? God said, invite them. Offer them wine. God said this. Offer them wine. Now that they're in the city, they'll be safe. So Jeremiah makes uh, pitchers of wine and serves it. But they refused this wine that Jeremiah offered. Jeremiah knew they would, <laughs> by the way. Even now, they refused wine. In what looked like the end of days, the end of the world, the end of a covenant keeping God's promises that a king would always sit on the throne and Jerusalem would never be destroyed and everything was about to go. It was a catastrophic end of days kind of scenario. But instead of capitulating to that, they refused the wine and remained loyal still. Hallelujah. Now, notice, this loyalty is not necessarily a loyalty to God, but it's a loyalty to their ancestor from 250 years previously. Nowhere does God say, you mustn't drink wine. I mean, it's at the Last Supper, for goodness sake. You it, nowhere does God say that. Nowhere does God say you must live in tents, a nomadic lifestyle. You, nowhere does God say you must never farm. So it, in a sense, it's just man-made rules. And they held them in faithfulness and trust and honor and dignity. They were loyal to these man-made rules, to this human command. 
And here's the purpose of God's word to Jeremiah. The Rechabites listened to the word of their father, their ancestor, but the Hebrews, God's people, the covenant people of God, don't listen to the law of Moses. They don't even listen to their ancestor at the Sinai. And this is the point of Jeremiah's oracle, his prophetic oracle at this point. So the verdict comes in verses 16 and 17, which will come up here now. The descendants of Jonadab and son of Rechab have carried out the command of the, that their forefather gave them. But these people have not obeyed me, the covenant people of God. Therefore, this is what Yahweh El Shaddai, the Elohim of Israel, says. I'm going to bring on Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster that I pronounced against them, which is in the law of Moses, by the way. Check out Deuteronomy 28 and 29. I spoke to them, but they did not listen, God says. I called to them, but they did not answer. It's a bit like raising children, isn't it? I call to them, but they just don't answer. I spoke, and they don't listen. So the point is that there's a non-Hebrew community more faithful than God's covenant community. Is that even possible? It's an astonishing level of faithfulness. And Jeremiah knew that they would refuse the wine, as I've said. This whole episode was a prophetic um, parable played out in real time. The final verse offers God's verdict on the Rechabites' faithfulness. I love this. Did you notice right at the end? This is God's verdict. It says right at the end of the chapter, therefore, this is what, and I'm putting in the Hebrew names for God here, this is what Yahweh Shaddai, the Elohim of Israel says. It's God using different versions of the name of God for emphasis and force. This is what Yahweh The name revealed at Sinai, I am who I am. This is what Yahweh Shaddai, the Elohim of Israel says, Jonadab, son of Rechab, shall never fail to have a man stand to serve before me. What a promise, huh? What a reward for this type of faithfulness. Now, as I was studying this, I don't know if you... When, you, when, you, when Hazel was reading this, a, a particular people group came to mind in our day. Anyone recall the Amish? Yeah. That's, what I, that's who I remembered when I was thinking about this passage. Now, they represent, among the modern world, or within the modern world, what the Rechabites did in Jeremiah's day. Now, I know that the Amish are not everyone's cup of tea, and we're not all called to live like that, but it does stand out, doesn't it? It is strange to our our eyes, to our mind, to see the Amish and their strange ways that just refuse everything in the modern world. Now, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm glad they're there. They're there as a sign. They're there as a sign to the world and before God 
I'm glad that there are image bearers of God living in communities, living a clean, simple, and radical life that puts our technological fantasies to shame. I'm glad that they're there. I'm glad also that God calls some men and women to the monastery or to the nunnery. A sign in the world of commitment and faithfulness to God. A different way to live. Not for everybody, but I'm glad that they're there. I'm also glad that some people in this world are choosing to live before God and the world a celibate life. I'm glad they're there. It's not for everybody, but it's a sign. I'm also glad that God calls some people to be missionaries, as we saw earlier, and pastors, and evangelists, and whatever else God gifts for people. I'm glad that God does that, that those people are there as a sign to the world, again, that God really does have his people, right? I'm glad that he calls you to live your life as a holy life before Yahweh El Shaddai, the Elohim of Israel. I'm glad that he calls you to follow Christ. I'm glad that there are men and women called to a particular life of faithfulness. What has been called, and I've said it here before, a long obedience in the same direction. That's the Christian life of discipleship. A long obedience in the, in the same direction. Not a life of quick fixes and shortcuts and fast food religion. No. We say no to those things. A long obedience in the same direction. I'm glad that in Christ there is extreme demand. Is Christianity hard? Can you do it on your own? If your eye causes you to sin? Thank you. Let's just see. Is there any one-eyed people in the house today? If your hand causes you to sin? Can you all wave at me, please? Come on. Two hands, let's go. Come on, come on, let's see those hands. Right, okay. Extreme demand. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who can live up to that? Here's my favorite. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ouch. Extreme demand. But thank God in Jesus Christ there is extreme mercy. So when we fail and fall, God picks us up again and our, we, we're restored in our repentant faith and our prayer and our crying out. God, help me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Extreme demand and extreme mercy so that when we fail, Christ meets us and says, as he did, as Jesus did to the woman who they dragged to the temple courtyards, caught in adultery. Now, I'm never very good at mathematics, but I am pretty sure it takes two to commit adultery. But the woman was there. Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? 
then neither do I condemn you. Extreme mercy. But go and sin no more. Extreme demand. Glory. Glory to Jesus Christ for this. Now finally, to make this more personal, if you are a Christian and you worship with the people of God Sunday by Sunday, then you have, we have, the same cultural influence as the Rechabites. How? I mean, Hazel, did, you said to me at the start of the service, didn't you, Hazel? I'm glad to read Je Jeremiah 35, but I'd like to see what you're going to do with it. <laughs> you are of the same cultural relevance as the Rechabites and how they speak to the communities around them. I'll tell you why. Put your hands up if you are in church this morning. <laughs> Do you know what? Just for the sake of the camera and the recording, most people didn't put their hands up. <laughs> Rebels at heart. No, no. But here we are in church. Now, the people around you where you live, they know where you've gone this morning. Recobite. And you've gone for them in some strange, mysterious way. Not that it saves them, but it bears witness. They know you are here. That's a good thing. That's a sign. That's a sign. Are there people that still go to church in the 21st century? Hadn't we got rid of all that superstition by now? <laughs> Your neighbors know where you are going. They sure know where I'm going. Everyone knows it's the man, so I better behave, right? But if they see you, then you are salt and light to them, Rechabite. Just by going to church, you've witnessed to Jesus Christ. You've borne witness. It's amazing. You don't know where that seed goes. Praise God. What good news is that, though? This is one of the ways that God works in the world. And in a world that is departing the ways of Jesus Christ with alarming speed. New versions of the Babylonians are surrounding us. Our culture is saturated with a kind of Marxism that must be resisted. Neo-paganism is on the rise in our Western cultures specifically. Neo-paganism. The old gods never really went away. Where are the Rechabites when we need them? Extreme wokery is the flavor of much of the world. There are temptations to sin. We have in our, in our, in our pockets, we call them mobile phones, but they're really mobile porn theaters. How do we teach our kids these things? Because as I've said, the world is not neutral. How do we live before Christ. So temptations to sin and depart from Christ abound. P.T. Forsyth said this, and I hope you'll see it up here. It's a wonderful line. Society is hopeless except for the church. Yes. Society is hopeless except for the church. And the church has nothing to live on but the cross that faces and overcomes the world. 
praise God. We have nothing to live on but the cross of Jesus Christ.